Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name's Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group and I'm passionate about all things leadership and management. So passionate, in fact, that I decided to start a podcast about it and here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Yu Dan Shi, who is the author of Come Alive, Live a Life with More Meaning and Joy. Yudan is known for helping professionals, executives and entrepreneurs find clarity in their life, career and business so they can focus on what really matters and succeed with joy and meaning. 2008, she was a senior executive with a young family, seemingly had it all. However, she felt stagnated, unhappy and wanted to quit. At the end, she didn't quit. Instead, she began to search for an answer. Yudan did extensive research over the years and found out that what she felt is normal and can be turned around with a strengths and inner genius approach. This approach has given her and hundreds of corporate professionals renewed direction, energy and taking them to a whole new level of joy, success and fulfilment. Yudan worked as a senior executive within the Fortune 100 companies and also as a leadership coach for a global talent management consultancy. She also holds several coaching psychology degrees and qualifications. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore Yudan's book in detail. I start off by asking Yudan, why did she decide to write this book? We speak about the patterns and habits that lead us to where we are. We discuss the four habits of high achievers and the four practices of living well. And I finish the interview by asking Yudan about starting one step at a time and her daily practice checklist. So keep listening. And as always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Yudan Shi, author of Come Alive, Live a Life with More Meaning and Joy. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Yudan, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are. Who is Yudan Shi? I'm an executive coach and a business mentor, and I recently wrote a book called Come Alive, Live a Life with More Meaning and Joy. But during my day-to-day work, I work with corporate professionals and executives who might feel a bit stuck you know, in their career and life, and I help them find that clarity and what I call bring joy back to their working life. So we're here today to talk about this book, and I think it's uh, it's going to be a little bit of a different interview today, just because of the, the nature of the book. And I think it's really important to that as leaders we start to think about you know, how we live uh, with more meaning and joy. So, why did you decide to write this specific book? I wanted to write this book. I think that the original idea um, came maybe two years ago. Um, I personally have experienced quite a bit challenging time more than a decade ago when I was working as a very senior executive for a global tech company. And, um, you know, sometimes it's only when you came out of that situation, you realized how much you have learned, you have grown. So, you know, um, when I started to work with a lot of other people on this journey, I felt like I should step up and actually share my own personal learning in a more explicit way 
because I remember the biggest challenge I had at a time when I experienced my own, um, you know, confusion, basically, uh, even though I was very successful, I was just lost. I was miserable. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't even like life anymore. I remember the most difficult thing at the time is one, I didn't understand why. And two, I didn't know where to go. So after having gone through this process, I now know why. And I know it's actually not that difficult to walk out of that dark period. Um, so I just knew if someone's going through a very similar thing, it will be so helpful if they just can grab a book and go, ah, oh, this is why I can see the hope. I know what's happening and I can do something about it. So that really is me going back to 12 years ago. What would I have loved you know, to see or read um, if I was back in that place again? So I want to get, uh, I want to sort of dig quite deep into the book, but I think I want to start off with a, a bit of an excerpt, which I think sets the tone uh, for the book and, and it comes from the introduction. So one April afternoon in 2008, I was in a taxi on the way home after another day of business meetings. As the car was about to exit the Sydney Harbour Bridge, I suddenly felt very ill. I knew something was seriously wrong. I started to feel nauseous and excruciating pain on the right side of my body. I told the driver to take me to the nearest emergency room before I blacked out. 36 hours later, I was taken into an emergency operation. The doctor told me that my gallbladder was so infected it could rupture at any time and the condition was life-threatening if I left it any longer. I needed an operation immediately. It was a race against time. My doctor also explained that I didn't have any reason to have this illness given my age, weight, and diet. I was only 32 years old. The only explanation was extreme stress. Must have been a bit of a, a, bit of a wake-up call for you. It was such a shock when he said, normally you don't have this condition, you know, until you are maybe 50 at least. And um, normally it only happens to people with diet problem or weight problem. Um, and what he's trying to say is I was the cause of it because I was the person who was stressed in that situation. Um, it was an absolute shock to me because you never think stress would potentially cause death. I didn't know that. Mm. So I was stressed every day and I actually thought it was a good thing. I actually thought, you know, if you're a successful person, you're meant to be busy and stressed out. You know, it's like a workplace. We used to say, we still say this. How are you? Oh my God, I'm so busy. I'm so stressed out. It's like, good. You should. <laughs> That's why you're here. <laughs> be stressed out. You know, that means you've got a lot to do. So it was such a shock. Yeah, I, th I think it's something which a lot of leaders are starting to recognize more and more that that's uh, a big part of what's happening with the way work is changing, the way technology is changing, the way, you know, all, all things around work are changing. I think people are starting to really zero in on that there's a lot more expected of them and they're given a lot less resources to do it, which, you know, unfortunately can lead to people being very stressed. Yeah, definitely. And I think... Um to me, it was such a wake-up call um, also because I actually knew how I felt for a very long time. Like I said, I knew I was stressed out um, and I also knew my stress wasn't just caused by workload. My stress was caused by now I call this syndrome, hollow victory, um, which I borrowed this term from 
Dr. Tony Grant, my coaching psychology professor from University of Sydney, it's a very common symptom and people don't talk about it. That is very successful with people who have worked hard all their life, um, you know, from school, college and to workplace to climb up, whether you're an entrepreneur or a sports person or a corporate executive, we believed that ultimate achievement will make you happy and will make everything be great and be fine. And then we get to that place, it's momentarily okay, but it's not. Um, you, during the pursuit of success and goals, we have lost so much of us, not just our physical energy sometimes and well-being, but we also lost so much of us, the ability to enjoy life, sometimes our own identity and you know, all of that. So to me, my stress came from I did not understand why I was miserable even though I was successful and I have achieved what I wanted to achieve in my life and in my career. So that huge confusion um, around why I'm disconnected with all of these things which I spent, you know, 25, 30 years striving for it um, is caused a massive, you could have said almost like a crisis point at the time because I couldn't figure out my own confusion. So I want to uh, start to uh, dig into the, the, the book in detail. And I, w- I want to start with uh, chapter one where you talk about this idea of the paradox of success that you're winning on the outside, but you might be losing on the inside. And I think that's something which the listeners could, some of the listeners could probably relate to. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think this notion that the way so many of us have been brought up and the role models we look up to has always given us the impression that, you know, if you are successful and you're achieving something, um, you will naturally be happy. This is honestly what we have been told throughout our life and our childhood and everything. No one, very few people have told us how to achieve success in a um, healthier in a more authentic way. Um, the most ways we have been told to achieve success is based on things like no pain, no gain, and you must push through even though you make you know, um, immense personal sacrifices. I mean, how many stories we hear people who are successful, but then they come out later said, well, I lost this, I lost that, I lost this, I lost that. Think about this. As a human being, if we make all of these losses in all areas of life and the only thing we got is this one external professional achievement, whether it's money and a status, it is not possible you will be happy. So this paradox of success is about, you know, you, you look all, have it together externally, um, but internally you know yourself very well. Every time you make another sacrifice, you normally say, well, I'll just do one more time. Next year I'll be better. I'll do one more time, next year will be better, right? You keep making these trade-offs and then you become a habit and then you hit a point, the sacrifices you have made so much in your life, you hit an accumulation point, you start to become really empty. You start to go, I don't get why. I have this outside, but inside I'm feeling empty. So this is the paradox of success, that the traditional way how we perceive achievement would lead so many of us high achievers to that point. Yeah, and, and I think yeah, your, your point there about the high achievers is, is, is really relevant because sometimes um, the people that probably aren't as ambitious as others 
quite often they actually seem happier, don't they? Yes, because they got that trade-off in a more balanced way, yeah? Mm-hmm. Therefore, we hire achievers because of our value system, we value achievement so much more than everything else. So our trade-off is different. Mm-hmm. And because we believe that's what it takes to be ultimately successful, we justify it. Um, but if you hit the point, you can no longer feel happy. You can no longer feel this is going to be worthwhile anymore. Then that is not a real success because it is not a true success if you may have something external, but you go home every day miserable, right? So this is what so many people tell me that I don't feel I'm successful anymore now because I am not, <laughs> you know, I, I'm miserable. So I'm not really successful. I can't call myself successful anymore. And now I go, that is true. But that is also a great reflection point. What is real success to you? So you also talk about this idea of the fear of failure and being a disappointment. And I think this is uh, something which is probably relevant to a lot of people, but they don't always acknowledge it to themselves. So can you talk a little bit about what we can do about this idea of fear of failure? I think a fear of failure is when you, to me, in that particular point of my life, when I suddenly realized, you know, after the stress, after the emergency operation, I knew I couldn't keep going the way I did. I knew I keep, I couldn't pretend, keep pretending I was happy because even though when I was miserable, I still turned up at the work as a leader. I was happy, appeared happy. I appeared as a happy mom. I appeared as a happy person. That is pretending. Okay. That is because I felt I had to hold myself to that degree in order for me, um, again, just to have maintained a successful image. So when you get to ref- uh, that inflection point, you go, I can't keep going the way I, I have been doing things. But then the question is, okay, so if I change, what does that mean? So then you all previously get very afraid because even though you have been miserable, but for some reason, whatever you have been doing has got to this place is high achievement. So if I don't do it, my biggest fear at the time and I know many high achievers face the same fear is, does that mean I will achieve less? So our fear isn't necessarily, you know, other fear. It's still achievement driven. Does that mean if I change how I do things, I might achieve less? And if I achieve less, does that mean I will disappoint people? Do I disappoint my team? Do I disappoint my boss? Do I disappoint my parents? Um, do I let people who look after me down? That is often because um, people don't actually understand which took me years to understand later, that actually happier people will achieve much, much longer. The achievement we had under the unhealthy way of achieving, yes, will get you somewhere, but will not sustain you. But if you just adjusted it more slightly, not letting the achievement go completely, you might just achieve greater. But I didn't know that. And most people didn't know that. So Mm. that's what I mean about fear. Yeah. You also talk about this idea of the patterns and habits that lead us to where we are. And I'm, 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 I like to think of myself as I'm quite a, quite a disciplined person, but I also know that sometimes, you know, I, I, like everyone have certain, certain habits and patterns. What, what can people do to start to identify what patterns and habits they're following? Often when we um, have problems, whether it's at work or in life, um, so the first thing people normally think it's 
it's because something external is causing this problem. So we go, okay, in my case, I go, okay, clearly it's my job is causing the problem. Maybe I shouldn't work for corporate. Maybe, you know, I shouldn't work for tech. So what we don't look at is, well, actually, I'm the co-contributor of this situation. So, um, and, and to me, this is a great way to start when we are in any situation, rather than just look at external factors, which is outside ourselves, going, okay, so what role have I been playing? And um, because every habit we have normally, it, when we do it moderately, it's a great. So just like you being disciplined, I was being, you know, um, having what we call good work ethic. You know how many of us are very proud of having good work ethic? But, you know, work ethic has a continuum, right? So you can go into a extreme. So when you become an extreme good work ethic, that just means workaholic. So, so, to, so to me, that is the way to look at it. Just go, you know, what, um, how have I been working? How have I been um, contributing to these factors? Do I see in some cases um, what used to I view a good trait, now I'm actually overusing it, and this is potentially causing me the problem. So to me, it's a very simple question for me to ask. I now ask people to ask this question, what long-term beliefs have brought you success and derailed your happiness? So, you know, so what long-term habits, what long-term beliefs that have got you where you are today, but you know you might start to derail your happiness and well-being, and this one question alone, most of them can come up with a two to three things straight away. And we just start with that. We just go, okay, that's great. Okay. So you also talk about the, the myth. Uh, and it's a myth, I think, which a lot of people are familiar with. And that is that uh, ambition can lead to happiness. So if someone is um, ambitious, because I personally, I think ambitious is, ambition is a, is, is a positive thing, but I think it, it needs to be tempered a little bit so that people are focusing their ambition in a way that is going to bring them some level of happiness and it's not just going to take them to that, that place where they're completely miserable. So I suppose my question is how do, we, how do people know that they're on the right path to happiness while still having a bit right, of ambition? Right, yeah. So ambition is good, actually, and I always say to people, I'm still highly ambitious, I'm still highly driven, and uh, to us, you know, we need to have that drive um, in us for us to even contribute, think about how we add value to people. That comes from drive. So there's nothing wrong to be ambitious. I think the, 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 the reason a lot of people end up in that, what I spoke before, that paradox of success, which is even though ambition takes them to achievement, but then they actually feel miserable at the end, is simply the way they go about being ambitious and achieving. A lot of us, you know, became ambitious, not always come from a healthy place. Um, if you speak to really ambitious people, you will know often you could come from a place of either, you know, a feeling inadequate when they were young, or they're really trying to please their parents, and they're trying to earn their recognition and love. Whatever it is, it's not always a healthy way of becoming ambitious. And because of that psychological factor, so many of them believe if only they just achieve, that would make people respect them, love them, recognize them. They now are someone, so people are not going to bully them. People are not going to think they are um, inadequate. If we, come, if we are ambitious, come from this place of proving to others we are better, we're smarter, we're right, you will never be happy. 
because that happiness has to come from yourself. That you have to be so sure of yourself and go, you know, matter what, nothing is who I am. I am who I am, and I'm proud of being who I am. And I think that this is a life's work. This is literally life's work. Whoever can get to that place psychologically, you naturally you just know, you know, the difference between really success, really, really successful unhappy people and somehow successful unhappy people is a psychological factor. So for me, definitely for a long time, the reason I wanted to be successful is because I came from a family that's very poor. You know, um, I was bullied. Um, we had so many challenging situations when I grew up. So I had this immense ambition. I'm going to be somebody, you know, so no one would uh, um, look me down. That's not healthy. So I was never happy, therefore. And I thought, um, achieving would take that misery away. It didn't, and which is why I'm making it even more miserable. But then once you start to realize that, you start working on this, it doesn't matter anymore, and you only become more successful, which is why I never stopped achieving. Um, but now it's coming from a place of, you know, helping and adding value, I guess, and, you know, sharing, <laughs> sharing my, my own little talent, you know, rather than trying to prove it, if yeah. that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I think that ties into, I wanted to ask you about uh, people needing to understand their innermost motivation. And I think it ties quite nicely together about what you said about really people looking deep into themselves, try to understand what is their motivation for either a role they've taken or being successful. So how do, how do people start to find what it is which really motivates them? How do they start to do that? Yeah, I realized that um, often in life, there's this point in our life and often may start quite young because all of us starting when we're young, we know what drives us, what motivates us. Child does not need to be told how to be happy. Child, even in extreme condition, you know, terrible childhood, still know how to experience things that make them laugh and makes them have, have joy. Um, but at some point in our life, we suddenly turn off that point, like I said, turn off that joy, and then we go to that place of um, now I need to prove someone or something, something. So this is what happens. Then we gradually start to lose learning about our innermost motivation. I'll give you a very simple example, and I think readers can relate to this. I would say up until maybe I was age nine, I know exactly what motivated me authentically and joyfully. I love the study. I love the learning. So if I go to school, it's never trying to get good mark, trying to impress anyone, trying to tell people I'm smart. And, you know, and I was a quite clever kid because um, if you read my book, you know, I went to primary school at four. I went to high school at eight. Yet I never did any of the study to prove I was clever. I was genuinely loved reading. Yeah, so I know what motivates me. Now, if I have held that motivation throughout my adulthood, I would have been fine. <laughs> but something changed. Something changed. When I was about eight, nine years old, I was in high school, like I said, and I started to, um, you know, I couldn't grasp one particular subject in physics, and I started to feel myself as dumb, and I started to feel like I, I'm a fraud, I shouldn't be in this place. So all of a sudden, my motivation of studying is not authentically for happiness anymore. It's trying to almost like either protecting myself or trying to prove other people I belong to this place. So after that, for a very long period of time, the only reason I study is to do that, and I carry the habit overall. So I always say to people, when people go, what drives me? I go think about 
what genuinely would give you joy without any external compensation? You always will find that answer. If you don't get paid, if you don't need to get a recognition from someone, if no one's going to like you on Facebook, but you would do it regardless, that's, that's the first indication that it is your natural motivation. And you will find many of these little things in life that would motivate you. And over time, you will reclaim your own natural motivation back. Mm. So now I do everything because I just enjoy, like even this podcast, I genuinely love podcast interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> right? How many views are we going to get? It doesn't concern me. That's not the point. Yeah. I, love, I love talking to people about these topics. In chapter three, you give a little bit of a framework around the four habits of high achievers. So what, can you explain to the listeners what these four habits are, please? Yes. So these four habits that it is as a high achievers, we care too much. Um, we um, very, what I call multi-talented and we do too much. And we are very single-minded. And I explain each one of them in a very simple way. A lot of us, um, as I said, you know, we, we are achieving because we're trying to um, meet certain expectations. So from a very young age, we learned that if we fo- follow the right success formula, do the right thing, that everything will be, will be fine. So we actually care a lot about what others think of us. We perhaps care more about what others think of us than what we think we do. You know, in my case, for instance, I, like I said, as a leader, and I was not happy, but I never told anyone. I did not even tell any best friend. I didn't even tell my family member. I certainly didn't tell anyone at the work. Yet only years later, I realized why I didn't do that. I had so much pride. I cared so much about what others think of me. I couldn't be vulnerable. I couldn't be truthful. And I can tell you I was not alone because every day, this is the work I do now, right? So this, I, I work with people who are like me 12 years ago. And they often say to me, I'm the only one they have told. They haven't told anyone. Why? They care so much. So, but once you let that go, life becomes so much lighter and we can become much more authentic and much more truthful. For me, the breaking point is the second I learned just to let that go, I can actually talk to people about it. Clever people can learn things very easily. We can learn many crafts very easily. It may sound a good thing, but what that means is trying to be everything. Often you forget about what your true gifts are. So you get to a point you actually get really confused because you don't know what you're known for anymore. And that is especially common for the people who has been corporate for a very long time. Um, they walk out of 20, 30 years career going, I have no idea what I'm good at, but that's because they never paid attention to their own unique strengths. Do too much. That one is so obvious. We talked a little on that already. The, the, the work hard culture is ingrained into so many of us. Um, it, it sounded a good trait on the surface, but a lot of us don't understand the signs of peak performance and the signs of our human body. That is, you will only perform to extreme level if you know how to take care of it. And that is a simple science, but traditionally most of us believe if we just work more, we naturally produce results. But research shows that's not the case. Someone works 50 hours compared to someone works 70 hours is very little um, difference. And the final one is uh, when you're so single-minded, only have one goal in your life, which is the ambition, you naturally let everything else um, disappear. And um, yeah, you just don't know how to experience life anymore. 
So I suppose to, to counter those, those four habits of the, the high achievers, you've got what you call your four practices. Uh, are you able to, to talk the listeners through what the four practices are and probably give them a bit of an insight into, into how they might be able to actually start to do that? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, so the four practices, I call them the careless. Um, so it's basically the opposite. So careless, more strengths, do less, more passion. You know, I, I put it in this way so it's really easy for people to remember um, on that. So in terms of careless, I, the thing I found the most helpful is um, when I came across this theory, you may have heard of this growth mindset. Um, I always thought that growth mindset means people love just love growing and learning themselves. And so what I realized at that point, I was actually very much a fixed mindset person. By caring, by caring so much what others think of me means I was happy to stay where I am and not, you know, not um, anyone who's ashamed of appearing stupid, appearing not having them together, which I was at the time, is actually is a fixed mindset because um, growth mindset means people who don't mind occasionally fail. They absolutely don't mind adjusting themselves. Um, so to me, that was really profound. When I began my journey, I realized I always thought I was a growth person, but I actually had a very fixed mindset. And in order to truly grow, just own it, just to say, I can't deal with this and what do I need to do? And, you know, each year as I become braver, um, and I noticed this from my clients as well, when they become braver of admitting these things, their growth becomes so tremendous because you and I have talked before the podcast, what I love about group learning is that, you know, when you learn from other people, problem gets solved. We can't grow and learn in our individual fixed mindset. So, so this is how I typically encourage people to call us. So more strengths is this one is extremely, extremely I guess to me at the one point time, I thought it was quite life changing because the reason I was so stressed out at work um, at the time was I perhaps spent the majority of my time working on something I was very good at, but actually not my real talent. And I didn't know that. So I spent all my time um, in areas that I thought um, I thought I should be really good at because, you know, if you are talented, if you are a leader, you should be good at everything. This is such a strong mentality. Most of us have been brought up from school education system and from workplace system because we're always being educated. It's important to be all-rounder. But being an all-rounder means that you turn up every day, have no idea where you can add your biggest contribution to. So to me, that's one of the things that really dragged me down at the work. I spend more time in my weaknesses than the things I'm really good at. For instance, you know, storytelling, strategy, build new markets. These are my strengths. But I was spending time on things like spreadsheets, you know, operations. Oh, my God. Like, even just talking about that now, that drags me down. I felt like, <laughs> I, felt like I should be good at everything, you know. So um, I learned from strength psychology, uh, which is a part of my Master of Coding Psychology degree, that... Every one of us has a unique strength. That's your unique gifts. And the only way to feel really authentic and happy and sustain your performance at a peak level is amplify your strength. And as long as you can 
you know, look after weakness to a smaller degree, you really shouldn't let that one to define you. So that one was massive. That practice alone halved my workload um, in my executive job. And hence, I was able to take up things like volunteer work and a study um, outside my work. Do, do less. I touched a little bit on this already. Um, again, it's the knowledge gave the power. What I learned most around is the science of peak performance. Apparently, do less makes you perform faster. Um, sports people is a good example. For the last past decade, a lot of Olympians, you know, gold medalists, they have learned that sleeping and recovery is key to their peak performance in the field. So faster you can recover yourself, better you're going to perform um, psychologically, mentally, and physically. So that's the same as us as um, entrepreneurs and leaders. It's not um, how many hours are put in. You should ask a different question. Is what do I need to do so I can be at peak state all the time? Being peak state means learning how to recover and how to perform at the same time. So um, I'm a quite logical person in a way, so I like these little stats persuading me. <laughs> um, and, and the final practice, and this one is, um, you know, how do you bring more passion into your life? Because um, – a lot of us are so confusing passion with living. Like, uh, okay, if I found my passion, I need to turn that to a living. I need to turn that to a business. I need to turn that to a career. So now you're all of a sudden even adding pressure on one thing that gives you joy. That is passion. So I always say to people, okay, why don't you just put that expectation aside? Why don't you just give yourself some time? Even for the next two months, start reconnecting with your hobby and passion in your life with no expectation. You never know. Like for me, that's this case was writing. You know, that was just a passion and a hobby. I didn't want my book, expect my book to be Amazon number one bestseller. But I loved it so much. I was willing to do it. Even my book doesn't bring me anything. That was never the point of it. Um, but if you love it so much, you would do more. And then naturally, you might combine the passion um, with the living at the same same time. Um, so, yeah, so um, I... I, I find that one is often stops people from bringing more joy to their life because they put pressure onto it. So, so let go of that pressure and just enjoy yourself for a while. Yeah, and it's, I, I think it's something which uh, entrepreneurs really struggle with is this idea of, well, probably all, all of the practices actually. I think uh, entrepreneurs have had a natural leaning to uh, not do those things because we just we're ambitious and we want to we care so much about what we do and we have to do everything when you're starting a business and it's a, it's a challenge but I think what your what your four practices do is provide a really good starting point for where people can start to focus their attention start trying to think about well what could I care less about or what can I do less I think it's a really good starting point Totally, totally. Yes, um, yes. And, you know, even for entrepreneurs, you, you can relate to that even multi-talented thing because when we set up business, we have to do everything ourselves, isn't it? And you would know this. And <laughs> Absolutely. It, it would drag you down, right? It would drag yeah. you down. Or how about sometimes you care about your clients so much, even they're not the right client for you. Yeah. And, you know, they eat you away your, 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 your energy. And it would be better you just say, you know what, actually, I can't look after clients like that. That's not my genius. I'll be better serving other type of clients. So you're absolutely right. All of that completely apply to both entrepreneurs and uh, corporate professionals. Yeah. So you, you talk about this idea of uh, resetting your priority. So 
I'm, I'm imagining we've got we've got some listeners who are probably they're in their they're in their roles, uh, they're they're doing their work, and they may be thinking about uh, something something different. How do they how do they start to reset their priority? I find often it's because our priority dictates our actions. So I find it's good um, to actually ask that question so that we can get a sense what, you know, at that point of life, our life and career, what do we really want in order for us to feel like we're fully living. And I'll put this thing around um, one year mark because it's still long enough a year. It's, you know, and it's short enough to give you some urgency it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do everything come out of the exercise, but you will be surprised if you ask that question differently. Let's say, what might be my priority in 10 years versus what might be my priority in one year? Because by giving that time frame of 12 months, you will see some changes you need to make because if you are going to lose your life in 12 months' time, I know some changes you would like to make. So that gives us a really crystal guidance what areas in your life you might see, you know, you might see areas you really want to improve. Um, and I had this um, conversation with a friend one day. She was so stuck in her, you know, in her uh, career. And this one question she asked, she came back to me next morning. She basically said, you know, I know what has stopped me. What has stopped me is because I thought I still got 50 years. So that one thing has been so important to me for so long. I put it off because I thought I got 50 more years to go, but actually I don't, you know? So yeah. So the time frame would help you to, to really crystallize the, the, the urgency of it. Yeah. I, um, I really liked the, uh, in, in chapter five, we talk about this idea of career dissatisfaction doesn't happen overnight. It sort of builds over time because I was reflecting on my own, my own leadership journey. And I realized that that's very true, that it feels like it happens instantly, but actually the dissatisfaction takes time. Yeah. I don't know how many people have told me this one now. Um, They always say, because that's how I felt too. You know, I remember that moment of dissatisfaction was so clear, which I wrote about in my chapter one. Like I even remember the months happened, the year happened, right? It was September. It was 20, you know, um, 17. So it felt like, it was that point I was unhappy. But like I said, if I think back, if you think back, we know these things. We were not happy about it. And we just, um, we, we just keep letting it slide. And, and I think that this is why being self-aware and also creating some reflection points in our day-to-day work becomes so much more important. Most of us don't have the habits of pausing and reflecting. Most of us, from the moment we get up, all we do is doing, 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 and we do everything, family, business, um, then you go to bed, then you get up and do it again. When we don't, when we don't pause and reflect, um, this is when it accumulates. So now, like when I work with a leader in corporation, I always say to them, let's set two reflection points a day before you start your work. What do you need to do to make today meaningful, enjoyable for you as a leader? What would you get out of today so that by the time you go home, you're like, today's worthwhile. Today, my job is worthwhile. My environment may not be the best environment, but I made an effort to make my day worthwhile. And I'm going home, I'm happy. Before you go to bed, again, what have I done to make today meaningful, worthwhile, and enjoyable for me? What would I do differently? What did I 
let it slip again. And that's all we needed to do. If we can do that, that dissatisfaction is unlikely to accumulate to a point you will explode. <laughs> so yeah, some daily practice. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's certainly one of the, the best things any leader can do is take that time to reflect on how they're going, what they're doing, what, what they're finding challenging and sort of just thinking about stuff because distraction is everywhere now and you, you see it more and more that people are not thinking they're scrolling through Facebook or they're checking LinkedIn or they're, they're trying to do two things at once. You're watching Netflix whilst scrolling through Facebook. It's just people just don't take time anymore. Totally. And when we do that, what happens is subconsciously we are actually not happy with ourselves. See, when we can proactively create even that two daily reflection point, and it only needs to be five to ten minutes each day, it gives it sends a message to our brain that we are in control. Because we are in control, because we actually go put all noise aside. I got this 10 minutes, I'm gonna think about how I'm going to run my day, like I'm the boss of the day, right? How I am going to run the day, not how I'm going to let things to run me. And before you go to bed, you said it again. What did I learn? How I'm going to run tomorrow like a real boss again. So that sends a really strong message to you. I'm in control. When we don't have these reflection points, when we don't own it, we actually go to bed. Our brain says, here you go again. <laughs> you reacted all you do was reacting you're not owning it so we actually don't feel as good about ourselves mm. you, you talk about the idea of the natural power of strengths and it's one of the things that i often uh, talk about in the leadership programs we run is that you, you can't be good at everything so identify what you are uh, where your strengths lie and, and make that the cornerstone of your leadership how do, in your view, how do people find what they're good at? How do they uncover that? Yeah, I have a very simple way helping people to find what they're good at, which is don't ask the question, what are you good at? And <laughs> even, though, even though it is a definition, the definition is what are you naturally good at? So it's two aspects, as you know. It's what are you good at, but what is naturally, what comes to effortless, right, is a definition of true strengths. But I have found when we ask logical people the question, what are you good at? Normally the answer is, I don't know. I'm good at many things, but I don't know what I am truly good at. Um, because that takes them to a place of very logical. So now they're confusing skill set with their natural gifts. So rather I ask this question, what do you enjoy doing? What If I put 20 skill sets on the whiteboard, I go just looking at these 20 skill sets, which one you go, oh, I love this one. You know, so people would say things like, oh, I love coming up with new ideas. I love brainstorming. Oh, no, like I said before, operation. No, that's not my thing. Yet another person going, I love operation. I love details. I love organizing. Oh, no, I hate blue sky. They're really wish-washy people. There it is. Yeah, emotion. You know, back to the innermost uh, motivation. That's all it is. Our drive gives us the answer. So what do you genuinely like and give you joy? It means it's your natural, natural strength embedded in your body. And I find it's so quick. If we teach them that, they just immediately can get, oh, you know, even they can look at the JD, they immediately go, I see it now. It's 70% aligned with my natural strengths. I'm in the right job. I'm in the wrong job. It's a very simple way, even for their future, you know, job progression as well. Yeah. Okay. 
And I suppose that that's a, a sort of a perfect segue into, I wanted to talk to you about this idea of that you speak about of how change, how we perceive ourselves. Does that, does that come naturally after people have done the self-reflection and realized that they have natural strengths in a certain area and then suddenly their perception of themselves starts to change? I have found in my um, Discover Your Inner Genius workshop is a workshop I run with people. I notice you really change how they perceive themselves in a very instant way. It does not necessarily mean they immediately have mastered habits of reinforcing that self-belief. That takes time. That takes another, you know, um, ongoing training. But it does immediately takes into a place realizing because when I put it into a group, um, you see, most of the time, the reason we don't value our gifts is because the gifts are so easy, right? So if you think about yourself, like doing this podcast might be super easy for you or being disciplined, being organized must be so super easy for you. Like being organized is so difficult for me, so you know this. And um, so when you put people in a group, um, when they realize other people struggle in the areas they excel and come effortless, they're like, oh, you mean not everyone has got this? I have got this, right? Because before they always think, People always think what I have is not special because everyone has got this. So, yes, immediate change of the perception, that's not the case. What I have got is unique. Um, and I find that's extremely energizing for especially people who has been corporate for so long. We were told being a good leader, you need to be this and this. It's almost like there's a template, right? So mm -hmm. you're all trying to be good at everything. But when they realize, even compared to the peers, they still have got unique things in each of them. I think this is when they go, I need to own this. Like, how can I therefore use my unique strengths more in my leadership role? There's a, there's a myth you talk about, and it's one that uh, is very, very common, and it's this idea of working hard. So talk to me a, bit, a little bit about the myth of working hard. When I was growing up, I was um, a daughter of two you know, mathematics um, teacher. My dad is a quite famous mathematician back in China. And uh, I remember dad used to work until 3 a.m. every morning um, because he had to teach during the day. Um, and then he's writing his paper in the night in those days before computer and everything. So he would write his formula. And every time he makes a mistake, he has to rewrite the whole article. So we really didn't, he really didn't have much time to like nowadays. But I remember one thing was so profound as a child was mom and dad always said the reason your dad became the, you know, eventually became the youngest professor in university is not because he's smart. They used to tell me my whole childhood, yeah, that is not smart at all. Like, in fact, your dad is actually not smart. <laughs> <laughs> the reason, they say, your dad, the reason your dad became the youngest math professor in the university, even after he lost 10 years in his um, youth due to cultural revolution, because he didn't start university until he was 28. And he became professor when he's 44 or something, maybe 40, 40, I don't know. Is because he works really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so they never told me talent. Like talent's okay, but they're like working hard will get to places. So yeah, so I definitely absolutely believe in that for, for such a long time. And I know society, um, absolutely, you think about all the examples, most heroes, the heroes we admire, 
Rarely are the heroes who's talented. It's always the hero somehow just works so hard, right? They're like underdog, they rise above, you know, they do multiple jobs and they still go to the training, all of that. So the message is always you just need to work really hard and then you will be where you are. And then sometimes, um, so, so this, this, this is, but this is a miss, as I mentioned before, um, you know, science of peak performance tells us each of us has, uh, you know, um, has a different way of managing our energy. And, and the reason, um, you know, early sports people value an even high coach and a high health scientist helping them to look after themselves, their diet, their physical energy and sleep. Like sleep is a secret weapon so many you know, sports people use nowadays is because they understand the only way for them to get up the next day, perform again, is they have to have the ability to recover their body 100%, right? Because our body is like a car. If you don't service your car, what will happen? Your car will run. You, your car will break down much faster than a car that gets serviced every year. So our body is just like that. If you service the world, you can actually every day waking up be in your optimal state. So I'm never going there trying to tell people work less. I'm just asking them, think about what are you doing to your body every day? Are you waking up every day feeling energized, motivated, and feeling like you're in a good physical mental state or not? Because if you're not, think about what habits has brought you to this not feeling the best state. And um, so, yeah. So, um, so, so that's, that's, uh, I, I think normally people, once they realize that they, they change a few things so they actually, you know, even perform greater. Yeah. And you also talk about the idea of understanding peak performance. And I think this is an interesting topic because there's lots of different views on what constitutes peak performance, how you define it, how you measure it, how you implement it. What, what does it mean in your view and, and what can people do to put themselves into that category of being a, a peak performer in a leadership sense? I think um, for a lot of us, especially the work we do, the mental clarity is a good indication of whether you are in a really great performance state. So, um, you know, if you feel like you are mentally always sharp, you are up to doing things, doing very challenging work mentally without feeling like you really have to rely on half dozen of coffee. <laughs> you know what I mean? Stimulus. If you can perform very good work with your natural energy and natural ability, have this mental clarity of processing, I think it's a good indication you are in a very good state. If, on the other hand, you feel like the only way for you to get this adrenaline going, energy going, is through relying on other things repetitively, likely that mental clarity is faked. So you are not in a good performance state. And there's a very simple thing I, I, I try to explain to people so they can see the difference because they can see the difference if you, you, know, if you look at this um, simplistic way. And the second one is definitely our body. So you, I always use this language, you either feel very energized or you feel kind of drained. So how do you feel, you know, how do you feel today? Do you feel energized or do you feel actually drained? So if, if most of the time you actually feel drained, again, you have to 
force yourself to feel motivated and get work done, likely you have driven your body too hard. But if you feel like you're naturally just have enough energy in your body without anything um, motivating yourself, likely you're looking after your body well enough that so it's in a regular healthy state. Okay. You, you write about the idea of changing habits requires an open mind. And I suppose my where I want to explore here is this idea of open mind because I'm not always sure that people always have an open mind, even when they say they do. So how, what can we do to encourage people to you know, open their minds even more to some of the ideas that you're, you're talking about? People don't like change. That's just a fact. Even though so many of us, and we are perhaps the same, I'm sure at every, you know, every year, New Year resolution, we will say we really need to make this change. But then we don't do it. Um, so change is difficult. What I have found is useful to helping people be more, more open-minded and um, making this change is to making change really easy. So don't try to make it such a big deal. Um, like the example I gave to you before, rather than say, let's just change the whole way you work and live, you know, for the rest of your life. I mean, that just sounds such a big deal. But if I say to people, okay, let's just pick one habit like out of all these things I just told you, which one relates you to most? Some people will say, I definitely work too much. Some people will say, definitely, I don't bring any of the strength to my work. We just pick one and we just go, what could we do? Just one little thing, like a tiny thing that you won't even notice, but maybe will give you a lot of benefits. So the, the thing I typically do, for instance, is creating a five minutes and 10 minutes reflection point during the day. And um, beginning in the morning when you have your highest willpower, um, before you rush into your social media, everything, could you just sit there and just think about how I can make today enjoyable? How can I make today meaningful? Whatever it is, just have that and immediately shift them to the space of I cannot make any change. You see, my habits are fixed to actually, I just made a change. It's tiny. It's five minutes. I can do this. And because they always get such a joy of being in control, you know, often I even tell people, before you rush into your office, I know you like your coffee. Rather than rushing to your office, could you this time just sit in the cafe for 10 minutes? Like actually really enjoy the coffee and enjoy watching people go by. Do you have five minutes? Everyone has five minutes. Once they relax themselves into the five minutes, enjoy their coffee, enjoy watching people rather than rushing, what does this tell their brain? I can make the change. I am in control. So then now we build more, we build more. So through everyday tiny, tiny change, sends message to yourself. You're very powerful. You can make the change. Um, so, you know, I, I never try to tell people be open-minded. I always tell them what one tiniest change we can make today to make you happier and perform better. And they always can come up with it. Okay. You mentioned that joy brings meaning and success. How do we find more joy? How do, we, how, how do we do it? How do we find it? Where is it hiding? Because I think there's a lot of leaders out there that are, like you said before, just doing their roles and they're not necessarily finding joy in it. So, so how do they find it? Where is it? I think it actually starts with do you believe in the first? Because as long as people don't believe joy is a good thing, you actually can't find it. So it needs to come out of first belief. 
Um, so to me, the one thing I struggle the most, and I know many high achievers struggle, is we all say we want happiness. But when it comes to the time choosing happiness and ambition, you're always going to choose ambition and work. That's just a fact for so many of us. I still struggle sometimes. So that's why I can speak like that. But, <laughs> but like I said, um, you know, decades of research actually shows um, that when you naturally are happier, your achievements actually sustain longer. I mean, this is a no-brainer. Think about this. Happier people have more energy. Happier people naturally is going to be what less grumpy. You know, people love us more because we got good energy. You think about if you like take a moment, just think about wouldn't anyone prefer to work with someone happier? Of course, who wants to work with the grumpy leaders? Nobody, right? So think from a logical point of view. If you are a happier leader. Your people is going to listen to you more. Your boss is going to like you more. You'll get more promotion. You know, you'll get more brand exposure. It's a natural. So once logically you understand that is a good thing, I think people start to become more motivated in going, okay, then what do I need to do about it? So that's the first point. Then the second point is I always say to people, please don't confuse joy with gigantic, like explosive Hollywood-style happiness. Because that is very difficult to get. <laughs> to get that every day like that, I think it's pretty difficult. But I think most people are live under fairy tale. We feel like when we talk about joy and happiness, it has to be like in that place. It's so gigantic, happy. Joy is just little joy. Joy is just every small moment that makes you realize you're living. To me, living is the joy because most of us don't live. We just react. We go through our life. It's a robotic. It's a, autopilot that's not living you are not experiencing anything so any moments of the day if you feel like i am actually experiencing life to me that's joy so that can be anything just walk on the street like i said five minutes in cafe and not rushed um you helped someone we're doing this podcast this is all part of life so you can find enjoyment every day so many times over so i want to uh ask you about this to sort of what you call the daily practice checklist, which you've put in at the end of the book. And it's, it's essentially a, a bit of a guide for people. So how do, you, how do you suggest people take this daily practice checklist and then put it into practice? Is it something they print out and put on their wall? Is it something that they take a photo of and put in their phone? Is it something they put next to their laptop? How do they take it to use it as a catalyst? I think there's so many ways. Some people just have this screenshot on their phone and um, some people, yes, actually they do print out, um, especially for the people still like carrying their, you know, physical uh, notebooks to meetings. They just print it out and they just put it in the back of the notebook so they can remind them basically whatever way that makes you comfortable. Um, but to practice it is just start with one practice rather than do everything because doing everything, again, makes change difficult. You want to enjoy the change. Pick the practice that resonates with you the most and it's the easiest to implement and put into your diary just for that five to ten minutes beginning of the day and the end of the day. Even if you just do once, it's okay. Even if you just do three times a week, that's okay. There's no rule. But just start with something and then you know, just go over that three questions I ask. Um, and then gradually you will build, you will build a habit. You're able to um, embrace more. I try to tell people maybe just, you know, one practice every two months so that 
embed one practice and move on to the next practice. Okay. So are there any books, people, leaders that inspire you? So many. I think I'm here because of the books. I really love reading. I love books. You know, everything I told you is coming from the books, really. <laughs> um, I, there's some of the favorite books started in my journey. Um, um, it's all in, there's a 50 references at the end of the book. So you can go over to see that. But there's three books the most outstanding at the beginning of my journey. The first one is by Seth Gordon called Dip. Because at that time I was thinking, should I quit? Should I not quit? Um, and the, he said, you know, smart people quit really fast. Smart people fail fast and quit fast. But once they want to do something, they stay with it. So it's the knowing the difference when you're in dead end and when you are in just a learning pain. That's two different things. So I, it gave me so much, um, it let go of my guilt, you know. And even though I didn't quit my corporate job, uh, I quit this whole thing around fear of failure. You know, I'm letting people down. So I basically quit that old mentality after reading his book because he said smart people quit really fast. So I'm like, okay, I'll quit. Quit that stupid mentality of um, fear of failure and letting people down. The second book gave me so much power around we all have power to take control and take our life back, which is by um, Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman. Um, he, Dr. Martin Seligman is the founder of Positive Psychology 30 years ago. Basically, he said, everything can happen to us. It can be situational or you can go, well, it always happens like this. So for the people who make change can always go, it happened once does not mean it's going to happen to me again. I can make a change. So, um, you know, that really changed how I perceive things because I inherited so many habits from my parents. You feel like I can't change because that's how I have been operating. But when you realize, no, actually, you know, you still can do this um, and making a change. And then the final book I enjoyed the most um, is called Coach Yourself by Dr. Tony Grant. He later became a professor in uh, Sydney Uni. Um, amazing book around how you manage your belief system. So, yeah, highly recommend it. Okay. So if people have listened to this interview and they're really keen to know more about you and the work that you do, where should they go? They should come to my website, www.yudanshi.com, and they will find every information there. Or they can connect with me on LinkedIn. So it's the same handle, Yudanshi. Okay. And so any last words on, on leadership and, and what it means to uh, come alive and live a life with more meaning and joy? Even take this whole process lighthearted, as light as you can, you know, um, knowing life is to be enjoyed. Even you might be in a place of confusion and stuck. Um, take this lightly and just go, what can I learn from this? What can I do um, to, to, to grow from this experience? Um, I want to leave um, everybody with, with this one thing um, I learned through my research. Um, I was so ashamed when I was at that place of feeling stuck and felt like I should have the intelligence to fit this thing out myself. So I was feeling very ashamed that not only I feel miserable, but also I couldn't figure it out. But I did, uh, through my um, research, um, I learned actually almost everybody, in fact everyone, will sometimes hit this point in our career and life. 
And this is not a breaking point. This is actually a defining moment for future growth. So I was so excited when I realized that almost happens to everybody. And, <laughs> and that's actually a growth opportunity because that means you're really mature. Uh, it means actually you're really mature and you are actually wanting further growth rather than saying, I'm okay being stagnant in this way I live and I'm just going to let it around me actually you can you know take take control so to me that's what i would allow people to realize it's not a bad thing it's um it's amazing growth and i have experience in the last 10 years i would never never be where i am today if i didn't have you know this confusion um in my early 30s well on that note you dan thank you so much for being part of the leadership podcast thank you thank you julie for having me on the show That wraps up episode 77 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another author interview episode for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site, leave us a review. In next week's episode, we have another great interview for you where I introduce another curriculum ecosystem episode. And I'm going to introduce you to the idea of stakeholder management. So it is another great content episode. Until then, love to hear what you think and happy listening.